I saw you dancing earlier. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I don't know. Well, the only way you can lose a fight if you don't get in the ring. Remember that. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. Just a note, whether the film is a classic or a more contemporary title, this will be an in-depth discussion that will include explicit plot details and potential spoilers. We are at episode 110 this time around, but before we get into the film, this marks the fourth anniversary of our show. It's our birthday, so happy birthday to us. Happy birthday to us. Strangely enough, I think we're talking about a film today that we saw almost around exactly the time that we started the show. What did you choose for us? And I didn't plan it this way, but I chose The Fits from 2015. Directed by Anna Rose Holmer, who shared story credit with the film's producer, Lisa Kurlf, and the film's editor, Celia Davis. It stars Royalty Hightower, Alexis Neblet, and Deshaun Minor. 11-year-old Tony trains with her boxer brother at their local community center. And while in the tentative stages of joining the center's all-girl dance troupe, the troupe's young members begin to experience mysterious fits. First off, I can't believe we've been doing the show for four years, and I can't believe we saw this way back in 2015. If my memory serves, it was a pretty exhilarating experience. Knowing this was a directorial debut, plus the debut of so many young, promising actors. I think it felt like we were on the potential ground floor of something great. And then, hearkening back to our recent episode on drug war, it does feel kind of excruciating to wait for the next thing to come. Do you have any specific memories around that first viewing? I do. I remember we went to see it at Austin Film Society, and the thing I specifically remember about it was when the lights came up and how I felt afterwards, how I was just kind of pinned to my seat. And I remember particularly what I carried with me after that was that sly, knowing look on her face, the last glimpse we see of Tony before it cuts to black. But that's getting all the way to the end, so I don't want to jump too far ahead. Okay, well, how about we get right into it? And that's with the incredibly arresting soundscape. We hear this young kid counting, and I'm hooked right away. I was too. A captivating sound as an opener, that's one of our favorite things. In this case, it makes me think of Lucrecia Martel's films that have all of those great sound elements before and after images are on the screen. Like you mentioned, this begins with our protagonist's whispered counting and when that sound is finally married with her determined face and her intense activity but something is still out of sync about it we have the whole film in a nutshell right there in 10 seconds her struggle with just enough off kilter about it to keep the audience from getting comfortable with reconciling what their separate senses are all taking in there's a lot of interesting sound throughout this film and we're bombarded with it at the beginning when we hear the music coming from down the hall from dance team rehearsals, we're like Tony. You can't help but follow it. It's compelling. Meeting Tony while she's doing these sit-ups, surrounded by that blue and red of the boxing gym, as she faces the camera, each rep getting progressively tougher. We're going to be her mirror several more times as the film progresses. And I had the sense right away that we're in the world of the young, kind of in the same way that Charlie Brown always felt to me. Kids have agency, and adults are present, but they're not the focus. And also, the camera is going to stay at kid level. Something interesting here that the director and cinematographer talked about, they never once tilted up the camera. So if they needed more headroom, they would specifically lift the camera up. Well, she apparently spends a good deal of time training with her older brother at this boxing gym. And a good sibling dynamic, it always hooks me. I'm a sucker for that. Having a baby sister that you love and want to protect but have to let go her own way is highly relatable to me. I'm an only child, so I really can't relate in that specific way, and maybe this question is more appropriate for your sister Haley. I am wondering what it feels like to feel that specific protection. 
I'm in a similar boat to you in that I'm not a parent and I don't know what that's like. But as far as the protection thing goes, you carry it with you all the time. It's not something that is the foremost thought in your mind most of the time, but she lives in my heart and my head. And so she's never very far from my thoughts in that regard. And of course, I always want to see that she's happy and healthy and has everything she wants. And I give this film a lot of credit for getting this character right. Maybe most of all, I love that her brother is not a hindrance to her. He sees what she wants. He encourages her. It would be really easy to set him up as an obstacle, especially since there aren't a lot of authority figures in the film and he sort of functions as the voice of seniority most of the time. I'm glad it doesn't do that. This is much more nuanced. Now we're about to see a different aspect of this world of the young, and that's through the lens of these older boys talking about girls, as Tony is this curious observer to this talk and behavior. Looking at Tony herself here, is tomboy even a thing anymore? Is this an outdated concept these days? I think 100% it is outdated, and it's used in different materials when describing this film. And honestly, now, 2015 seems like a different world. It doesn't seem like we have to be prescribed by these kind of gender ideas. Yeah, I'm not in schools anymore or around young people that much, period, I guess, so I don't know if it's still thought of the same way. I go back and forth on this a little bit for a couple of reasons. Because on one hand, like you say, gender is thought of so differently now than when I was in school, for instance, and it seems like tomboy is an outmoded idea. Like those sorts of lines have been erased and new ideas have sprung up to replace the old ones. But on the other hand, I don't have much of a problem believing in the very specific gender politics that go along with being on the dance team. And that idea seems as old as the tomboy idea. They lean heavily on these specific differences at times within the film. There's a slow motion sequence in the hallway with Tony in her gray training clothes, and then she's surrounded by a sea of dancers in their brightly colored sequin outfits. So she's certainly separate from the other girls. She has her own costume, but it's more like armor in this case. Multiple layers of protection. On one level that goes along with the boxing, but is a protection of other sorts necessary? My instinct about that is yes, and I feel a little anxious for her, because there's a definite code built into the dance team world that is somehow rooted in a very specific feminine that she might not have had access to before now. It's that whole thing of how do you learn the unspoken rules? She's not ill-equipped in general. It's just that Tony and the lionesses, the dance team, each have their own specific brand of confidence that's unique to them. Will hers translate in this environment? Mentioning that gray that she wears, it seems to match the gray of this wintry world that we're in this time of year. And those are her colors to start with. But she's also hiding some of her colors underneath that gray. And her hair is in braids, which is manifestly different than the other older girls who wear their hair down. I think it's both Tony's calm here and the other girl's jubilance that also makes me smile to be back in this world again. So let's talk for a second about the lionesses. This is the Q Kids dance troupe out of Cincinnati, and about 45 of the dancers were cast here, including royalty. And the director calls her mature, and that she has a great capacity to listen and to absorb, which I think is incredibly apparent on screen. The tough part was actually making her look like she isn't a great dancer. I'm also astounded that royalty was just nine years old during filming. And then also, the boxers were cast from the Queen City Boxing Club. So we've got elite dancers and elite athletes here in this film. And the dance itself, it's that really interesting call and response and drill. And we see these girls start to get physical in each other's close space, which also seems like something Tony is not used to. And the Q Kids are based out of the Lincoln Community Center, where the film takes place. We often see Tony here in her territory, working maintenance with her brother because it's his job. We don't see them back at their home, and so really, the community center is home. The laundry room is like their house. The overpass where Tony runs stairs, it's like her bedroom. And I love the use of the space here, that the character is the community center. We so often see Tony outside looking in. Outside looking in is definitely the case when she first encounters the dance team. 
But then the shoe seems to be on the other foot when the other girls come to look in on the gym when Tony is there. But they're not watching her. They're there to see the boys. So it doesn't quite give her the advantage of being in her own environment. Those girls, they all seem to move in a group. But like you say, it is a solo exploration for Tony most of the time. And then especially when she goes into their space after hours. You can see how strongly she's felt this lure. She's not the type to do something like this. You get the feeling she's very focused and wouldn't waste time on something that didn't mean a great deal to her. This is the second time now that her brother interrupts her reverie to get her back to work. Increasingly, in just a very short time, we feel like she is doing what she wants. And this feels like an immense step. Because from my brotherly perspective, I assume he's been an influence on her for her whole life. Has she even noticed before now that there are other things that she could be doing? But her will is strong, whatever she's doing. She's just finally going to apply that will to something that is her choice and her choice alone. I love watching those tentative leaps and kicks that she's working into as she's sort of practicing what she's been observing. Even practicing her repping and her clapbacks. Now, dance on film is a big deal to you. It's important to you. Why is that? So just in general, I love watching and experiencing dance. I feel so free. I feel so powerful when I do it. And it's those same qualities that I appreciate in watching it get expressed on film. I think it blends the appreciation for power and expression and dynamism. It makes me want to get involved in it. Plus... I think it adds the part of process that I like so much I like to experience. I'm enthralled to watch practitioners do it. Maybe it makes me think that someday I'll be better at it myself. And also I think there's just joy in appreciating genius in many forms that I will never be able to touch. And then, kind of like the character of Tony, at the end of the day, I hope that young people will see something that inspires something in them and makes them go do it rather than staying on the sidelines. Since you mentioned sidelines, I think I'm right when I say you don't feel sports as much as that, right? Not that you dislike those things. I know you enjoy Hoosiers, Breaking Away, Bull Durham, any number of extreme adventure documentaries. Does it move you similarly? You're definitely right in what I enjoy. I would throw 30 for 30 in there too. I really like those stories. I think it's the story that I'm attracted to. Sports doesn't make me want to go play sports by watching it in quite the same way. But the difference between athletic ability and dance is sometimes a really thin line, obviously. In this film, these are powerfully athletic routines. These rehearsal scenes, they're exciting, they're fun to watch. Is it just because it's more of an individual artistic expression that appeals to you the most, I guess? You know, I think it goes way, way back to my childhood so everybody go listen to the episode with my mom that we did as a free bonus Patreon episode. We had dance parties in the house all the time. My mom and I were always dancing. It was also the rise of MTV, and so I was constantly trying to mirror what I saw. What was the big video in your rotation? Oh my gosh, all of them. But I remember there was a specific contest for Madonna's True Blue song. And there was one video that made it, and it had a specific dance routine, and mom taught it to me. And that was really fun. I think there's just something in me I gotta get my hips moving. I think that example also brings us back around to the process thing that we both like, too. Because we really love to see those things, to see Tony and the team progress and improve. That is extremely satisfying. And then speaking of music, we haven't really mentioned the score yet, and I find it really interesting. There are these scenes of the boxing boys, bloodied and vomiting, crashing to earth in that very singular way that they do. And there seems to be kind of a dissonant woodwind playing here. And so if the score feels at home in a horror film, putting us off balance, that's on purpose. It was meant to create tension. And I'm thinking about this idea of not knowing what's scary, or if there's a monster around the corner. And if that monster, that looming thing that I might be trying or not knowing what's going to happen, is it going to be terrible? And Tony, meanwhile, while she's facing the camera, can't quite seem to get her rope work rhythm, and then she does. And this is while her brother is kind of gently encouraging her to try dancing. That's the scene that we had done. 
And I think also encouraging her to find her own rhythm if she wants to try a different one. And Tony moves forward on that. We see her on the sidelines watching dance practice. And we see that little puffball that we will soon come to know as Beezy sit next to her. I already start smiling. I think even then, Beezy is trying to get Tony's attention. The newbies on the dance team are called the Crabs. And one of the squad leaders gives this powerful lecture on responsibility and work. And that we're a team. They're called to give their first kind of trial routine, and it's going to be a clapback. And I think it's really fascinating that when they're called to stand at attention, Tony gets corrected. The stance that she naturally adopts is with her arms crossed, and they make her put her hands on her hips. It's not just her natural physical inclinations that we see here. She is being, at least to me, a little defiant here. She's not putting both hands on her hips. She puts one hand on her hips. <laughs> That's true. She never follows the directions completely, trying to preserve some of that autonomy that she's used to. Is this a self-defense mechanism? I think it's funny that you ask me that because you often remind me that maybe I have some uh, resistance to authority. A, a little bit, do you think? <laughs> so maybe it's saying, here's my move and it's kind of there, but it's kind of not. She's definitely not the most uncoordinated, though. It is a pretty sweet and funny scene. Obviously, from her boxing training, her punch is different from everyone else's that we see on the line here. It will be a struggle for her to find her place in this world. I mentioned earlier, there's a strict, unspoken hierarchy with these girls. She doesn't seem to belong right away. It's indicative of the strength of the character, and I think especially Royalty Hightower's performance, that I never doubt that it will be her will that carries her through all of this. The only thing that I wondered a little bit was if that would ultimately be to her detriment in terms of remaining isolated, because it's a tricky balance to find herself. It's a particularly dominant brand of femininity that is attempting to bend her to its will here, to make her part of this team. And that's the larger issue, right? It's not just about this activity, it's a larger metaphor for navigating young womanhood. She's dipped her toe in in another way. She's worn some of her colors, her purple, during practice. As she's listening to the other girls talk in the bathroom, she starts to cover those colors up, go back to her gray. So she does revert to her gray, and she heads back to the gym for an interlude. And I really like that everyone at the gym treats her with the same affection as her brother. They might give her a hard time, but they always encourage her and look out for her. It's an extension of that same thoughtful sincerity with which they write her brother's character. It's always such a cheap trick to me to make every environment fraught with peril so that you feel like the protagonist is beset on all sides, but Homer avoids that instinct. It's definitely just more true this way. I think there's something else really great about that in this story. There's no bullying. Even within the team, even within this kind of ultra-femininity, there's no threat of violence. They're not being challenged. They're not being told that they're no good, just that they have to work harder. And now we're starting to get some rumblings here of something going on. Some girls talking about being sick. One of the older captain's legs just doesn't seem to feel very well right now. But we don't know what's happening yet. In the meantime, finally, we get to meet the pure joy that is Beezy. She's got one of the best intros on film, I think, with that, hey, guns, you got a tattoo yet? Their friendship is such a beautiful part of this film. I love BZ2. The guns thing, the way she invades her space with that tattoo, it's a great example, I think, of the way that kids test each other when they're building those friendships. An introvert sometimes needs an extrovert and vice versa, and the introvert part obviously appeals to me. I am very fond of Tony because she just watches closely before speaking or making an ill-considered decision. It conveys that she is in command of herself, or as much as you can be at 10 years old. And thankfully, it doesn't come off as reticence or timidity. It reads to me as self-awareness, self-possession. Beezy is obviously the opposite end of that spectrum. But the contrast of the two of them, it makes me wonder, do you think that any part of her relative silence has to do with the fact that some of this experience, some of this knowledge that is going to fall upon these girls... That can't be expressed with words? Probably my answer is more informed by reading a little bit more about the director's intention. 
and that this started as a dance film, thinking about how dance is translated from one body to another, and that's inherently done without words. We see a great example of the filmmaking part of that, too. I like this depiction of the second rehearsal an awful lot. I think it's really beautifully and subtly blocked. It starts with Tony in the extreme foreground, and she is still struggling to get the routine. But as she continues on, she's determined. She begins to make progress. As this is happening, the camera makes a slight shift to incorporate her more into the body of the class. It doesn't place her in the center of it. She's obviously not the core of this. She hasn't gotten it completely down. But the camera, from where it sits, is telling us that she is making some progress. This is also when we have the instance of the first fit. As a viewer, we're not sure when it starts to happen. We just hear the reaction. And then finally, in sharp relief, we start to see legs go into a seizure, a fit of some kind. We still don't really know what's going on, though. Tony and Beezy don't seem to be too concerned about it. Especially as we watch Beezy make her little sprightly way through the court with her leaps and skips and cartwheels. We do know that Legs is staying in the hospital overnight, but we don't have a huge cause for concern yet. There's a nice little character note at the end of that scene that doesn't really call too much attention to itself, but I really enjoy it. Tony's brother looks after Beezy too. He makes sure that she has a ride. It wasn't at all necessary to put that in there, but it demonstrates character. If he is the primary authority figure or a surrogate for that, he makes what for some would be a hard decision. He gives them the tools and their autonomy and trusts them while he is looking after them. We've next got the boys and girls getting measured in their different ways. And interestingly, that results in Jermaine, Tony's brother, and having to lose five pounds during the weekend. I think that's an interesting note, actually, the way this is flipped. It is the boys' team that has to deal with body issues in terms of weight. It's not something that the girls ever discuss. And that inversion, it really draws my attention to this. I really like this neat juxtaposition of the girls being measured for the uniforms and the weigh-in at the gym. It gives us a clear indication of the two worlds that Tony is straddling. She doesn't quite fit in either one, but does she fit in one more than the other? To me at this point, I think she's still more in the in-between stage, and I edge a little bit more towards boxing, not quite to dance. I feel like it's equal at this point because her true discoveries are a little farther down the road. This quality that she has of being wise beyond her years, it's both what puts her in this limbo, I think, and it gives me comfort as an audience member that she won't be in that limbo for long. And at that moment, I think we're reminded of their age again, Beezy crawling on every single surface of this center, while we then see the next episode of The Fits, happening to the girl who just measured Tony. The Fits as a title obviously works on multiple levels, but let's talk about these literal fits since we have our second one here. Historically, there are certainly recorded instances of inexplicable mass hysteria, and I am fascinated by these collective hysteria events. Dancing plagues, the Salem witch trials, entire convents taking to meowing, laughter epidemics. There's even a case that's more closely aligned with what we see in this film. In Welsh, Louisiana in 1962, during a period when the school was closely monitoring the girls' sexual activities for some reason, 21 girls and one boy broke out with inexplicable seizures over the course of about six months. That's one way to get your parents off your back about who you're dating, I suppose. Strangely, in that case, though, it was the younger kids mostly having the seizures, not the older, potentially sexually active girls. And interestingly, mass hysteria was really the starting point for the director to find this story. She was fascinated by those stories that you mentioned. She had also started to find some videos on YouTube of girls who would make themselves pass out. So where does that come from, I guess, is the big question that I'm always left with when I read about these things. In chasing down the source of the fits in the film, finding the source is obviously step one. But where to even begin? And how on the mark is her brother? Because he admonishes Tony, don't start acting like her, implying that he thinks that this might not be involuntary. If these are attention-seeking behaviors at first, and then the result of seeing and then repeating, he's absolutely right to tell her that. 
but teenagers do strange things. And I'm sure that we can all point to something from that time in our lives that we thought made sense to do then, but that we would never do now. Puka shell necklaces. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. But if that sort of attention-seeking behavior is not what lies beneath all this, then there are a lot of questions. What causes the spread of this? Is this a pregnancy, menstruation, orgasm metaphor? Beezy is closer than maybe everyone so far as far as putting her finger on this when she asks, is this a boyfriend disease? We don't hear much discussion of sexuality here, actually. We do see Tony listening to some of the other girls talk about boys, but this is more about the onset of physical changes than the pursuits that follow. What do you think are all the possibilities here? What do we need to consider about this? Well, by the way, the director says that really any theory is totally fine. That's very David Lynch of her. And me, do you think, maybe? (laughs) I do, though, think that for she and the co-writers, there's more to a young person's identity than a sexual awakening. And in her words, they wanted to make this safe to show a young, complex girl exploring her identity without that huge, huge monster. So whatever's happening, this mass hysteria is still fascinating, and the director ultimately wanted to tell that story, that arc, through dance, rather than through dialogue. Which points me to one of my favorite scenes. Actually, I think my absolute favorite scene in the whole film. There's this great training sequence that segues from boxing routine to dance routine and then to a sort of hybrid of the two when she is working out in one of her favorite places on that pedestrian bridge. You can see in her face, she's getting it. And I like the way that it flips the typical sports training montage on its head and it's capped by just the most beautiful thing when she finally smiles at her own success. It's really a beautiful moment. And it's also in that triumph that That purple shirt that she wears is now a literal part of the community center. It's one of the multicolored stripes running through the hallways that get us to their practice space. But even though at this point, Tony is finally ready, the practice is canceled because of all of this recent upheaval. It's in the aftermath of this cancellation that Tony and Beezy, they sneak into the school to try on their dance costumes and just generally goof around. It's such a great representation of kiddom, I think, of the freedom to be their 10-year-old selves when no one else is around, when they aren't trying to fit into specific roles. And there's an excitement about getting these uniforms that I can vouch for. Getting uniforms was a big deal. Did you go through anything like that? Okay, mine's kind of a downer. Okay. (laughs) Getting the uniform only ever reminds me of my trepidation at getting gym clothes. Mm-hmm. Because I wasn't on a team that required a uniform. I just remember that time of year in junior high and early high school where I had to ask for a large or an extra large in shorts because they seemed too tiny. My mom says I make my own uniform. That's true. And really, I already weighed 100 pounds at that point because I started puberty early. And that seemed to set me apart. Or, more importantly, I thought that it did. And then you got hit in the head with a dodgeball and your pants fell down. The end. Pretty much. Well, being issued my basketball number was a day that I always look forward to every season. It is very exciting. So I definitely relate to the energy that they've got when they're picking these costumes out. And they do their team chant about the lionesses at that point. It's really fun. So it's apparent that Tony is a lioness now. And one of the guys at the gym, he makes her declare herself. So you're with them now? He asks her. Another one of the boys at the gym, he makes this observation when she's going to pierce her ears that she's growing up fast. And it's not in any predatory kind of way, I should point out. I appreciated that too. Did it read that way to you at all? I'm with you and I was going to ask you if you felt the same. Well then in that case, do you think this movie, does it too studiously avoid the darker, more dangerous elements? I know she said she wanted to make it safe, but we know these things are out there in the world. Am I finding too much relief in the fact that this takes place in a world where all the male figures seem to be upstanding and relatively harmless, benevolent, and even protective? I don't think that they're quite that chivalric, because they do really revel in their interactions with the older girls. So there's awareness, but it does seem like maybe there's some of that, her big brother is right here, and she might be growing up fast, but she's not grown up yet. 
I do like how she smiles slightly at this idea as if she's happy that someone is noticing that about her. It validates her perception of herself in a way that acknowledges her looming young adulthood. With these earrings, though, there's going to be trouble at home. She's on her own with this one. And I feel like, in as much as I can know what that feels like, that this whole sequence with the boys in the gym and the earrings, this is a gentle 10-year-old's microcosm of all the pros and cons of being your own woman. That ear piercing that she didn't get permission for, did Haley ever do anything like that? If she did, it was probably more likely that we went and did it together because I had mine pierced too around the time that she would have been doing that. But if you're asking, did she purposely do rebellious things to stake out her own territory for herself? Yes, she absolutely did. But back to the film. We have the occurrence of the third fit here, and this one is actually scary. This one is one that they are viewing up close, and you can see fright on their faces. You see Beezy clinging on to Tony's arm. No one understands why this is happening, and now it's big enough to be a local news item. You see it on the television. I am mostly intrigued by this episode because of the girls who have had them discussing it amongst themselves. It seems to be kind of different for each of them. One says that it felt like flowing. Another says that it was sort of like time stopping. It almost seems to be like an expression of individuality, even though this might be kind of a conforming experience, this mass hysteria. I think the thing that struck me most about this particular discussion, they truly believe, is what I feel. Nothing about their discussion leads me to believe that this is a put-on in any way whatsoever. No one seems the worse for the experience. They generally seem almost serene and definitely transformed. What do you make overall of the girls' reaction once they come out the other side of this experience? Even though I agree with you, there just seemed to be a serenity. While it's happening, I thought of the word afflicted. And so when I think of that word, one of the first things that comes to mind is that this is possibly related to your period menstruation, some other rite of passage. It's that idea that periods have long been referred to as the curse, in quotation marks. It just sort of seems appropriate. So based on that, I guess it's time to leave kid stuff behind. Though it seems like those things are hard to let go, as demonstrated by Tony dragging her stick along the fence just to hear that sound, which I associate as a very childhood pastime. This point is really driven home, I think, by the next episode where we find Maya in the empty pool. This is precisely when Tony sees her standing out there, and it feels to me like the definite closing of a chapter. This is when I throw away all the other theories and accept that this mystery is about the onset of womanhood specifically. And there are so many feelings that have to be bound up in this. The inevitability of it, wanting to get it over with, wanting to get there. Do you remember how you felt about this? Absolutely. And I was in a little bit of a different position. I started very, very early, much earlier than most kids do. And so it was kind of scary. But I think at the same time, I felt a little bit of a badge of honor that growing up in a good way. Oh, I'm on the path to something before others do. I have some sort of knowledge before others do. I obviously have the male equivalents on my side, but I think that we're both the same in that we both probably thought... I just want to get to the point where no one can tell me what to do anymore. Agreed. I'm still waiting to get there. <laughs> so does Maya seem kind of on the cusp? Does she seem like she wants it to happen? I feel like Maya seems to have willed herself to do it. She's the first one of their group, but her fit doesn't look like everyone else's, which makes me wonder, is hers genuine? Or is this just supposed to indicate the thing that you were talking about, that everyone's experience is different? When this happens, Beezy runs to her aid right away and everyone else runs away. But Tony specifically, she seems angry about this. Is this because she feels a betrayal? Does she feel a little left behind, do you think? I think that she's possibly a little mad because it seems like Maya has given into something that she didn't have to give into. Feeling left out of their group of three. Maybe she wants to stay in a specific world. I think that's it. I think that maybe she is thinking this isn't what she wants after all. She's had a little taste of it. No, thank you. Not for me. And so she retreats to where she's comfortable, the gym, to think all of this over. She does it, though, in her purple shirt. 
And I love when she's talking to Jermaine about being scared and he's trying to make her feel better. He's still convinced it's really all in everyone's minds. I think the thing that's most important about that scene to me is that, yes, he does try to answer her questions, but he doesn't coddle her. What can he do? There's nothing to be said about this. If this is indeed the process, no one can stop it, obviously. What can you do but just continue to move forward through it? As if there was any doubt that that world was not for her, her ears become infected from the earrings, which I think is a nice bit of symbolism. It's a low-key enough detail, and yet it's a universal enough thing that it's both relatable and appropriate to their age and situation. So many kids that I knew at that age, it never happened to me, but a ton of people I knew, their ears did get infected from this process. I don't know if that's because Claire's was using a dirty gun over and over again, or if the potato you stuck behind your ear to jam the needle through it was not properly washed. I got mine done at Claire's. That's where I got mine done. We were destined to be together. Absolutely. But at any rate, something is in her blood. Is it from trying to do too much too soon? She's testing things, trying things on, trying to figure herself out. And so here's the big question that I come to that I am obviously not equipped to answer. Is womanhood the problem, the solution, or something else entirely? I want you to answer this huge question right now. Oh my God. All of those things? The problem and the solution? Lord, babe, I, I don't even know where to start. Well, let me narrow it down a little bit. How about this? Is this a perilous time? Because it feels like something dangerous to most of these young women is hovering just outside of the frame. I don't feel that way about Tony. I don't feel like she is as much at risk as the rest of them. Is it similar for you? Or did you feel that way at the time? Was there danger inherent in this? I think that those girls are at two different stages, and those stages are important. So BZ and Maya and Tony, I don't feel like they're in danger. They're on the cusp of one part of womanhood. The older girls are in, to me, the more dangerous part. The part that comes with the feelings that you're grappling with. That's a very good point, I think, that you make, because Tony is not grappling as much with those complex emotional parts of this. Right now, I think... It's the physical part of the transformation that may be troubling. And maybe that's what makes me feel she's a little safer than the rest. Because I think I see her as more at home with violence and the body, obviously, because of the boxing training. Because when you view these as individual occurrences, these fits are a violent physical event. Do you think there's an irony here in that the fits require you to lose control of your body to achieve a more enlightened position or a position of greater control ultimately? I think that's an absolutely brilliant point. Thank you for saying it. I do love the way that these contradictions are inherently part of this mystery. I think the other contrary circumstance that really speaks to me is that she's most comfortable alone, or at least that's what I project, and yet she is still seeking this collaboration or female company. Of what benefit do you think that is to her? Because you and I, we're both pretty solitary people in general, and for me... This sort of thing takes a big emotional effort, especially to sustain it for any length of time. I have kind of a multi-part question back for you or sort of point, so bear with me. It's at this point where I think I completely relate to the film, and I'm wondering how you feel about it. I'm thinking about something the director said, that we smile when we see someone else smiling, which is not you, and that we want to belong specifically when talking about the possible contagion aspect of the fits, that it's less about conformity and more about collective identity. And so just in general, the idea that adolescence can be scary is something I don't think you really respond to. I do relate also that Tony is in general self-isolating rather than being told from some outside source that she's no good. She's navigating her own insecurities, her own limits, and then also her own powers. So I don't know if any of that was coherent, but that's what it made me think of when you asked that question. Some of those things you mentioned are specifically why I relate to Tony so much in this. You're absolutely right in the fact that I didn't feel those anxieties and fears the same way. That is not part of it for me. I had a pretty grand time through childhood and adolescence, and I don't recall feeling that feeling of not belonging. If I ever thought about it, I do recall feeling a feeling of, I don't care. 
And that's the part of Tony that really resonates with me, the exploratory part of her, the part of her that is the scientist about the way she's feeling. And I say scientist not in the sense that she's trying to come to a solution to a problem, but only in the sense that she is probing. I really love that about this character. Beezy, on the other hand, like we said, she's the other end of the spectrum. She's a little bit the opposite in this case. In an attempt to figure out exactly what is going on with these girls, there is this sequence where they are taking them into a room at the community center to talk to the adults one at a time. Never a situation that's any fun when you're school-aged. Beezy has her own version of a fit, and her affliction seems to stem from her ears in this case. She's covering them up, falling on the floor. It's a lot less like she's going through a transformation, and more just like she doesn't want to hear this news. Interesting. But either way, as a result, Tony is now truly back to being on the outside everywhere, now that Maya and Beezy have both had their fits. She's more isolated than she ever was, and fittingly, there are constantly barriers between her and everyone else at these points, using the geography and the physical features of the center very smartly. If it's not barriers, then it's large, empty spaces like an empty pool or an empty gym that is engulfing these small young girls. It's a big world out there, and these girls don't have much of a space in it yet. This center is their entire world, and the limitations that are built into that define the choices that are available to them. Do you think being limited this way, as far as what a location offers, do you think this is realistic, this environment? Does the film suffer from Tony having no interactions that aren't encompassed and defined by this community center setting? Even though it wasn't my experience growing up, I think it is incredibly realistic. I think it is an effect of the budget that they were on, and also a really valuable element kind of of synchronicity. They made the center home. It's the place upon which they orbit. It's the center of happiness and change. And realistically speaking, if you are going to be on a team or dedicate yourself to this sort of athletics, you are going to be there every single day practicing. The closest analog I have is to theater. I lived every moment of my life in the theater. I ate there. I showered there sometimes. I slept there. I worked there. Everyone I knew was there. I think the choice works perfectly, both because of the limitations imposed upon them and that working in concert with specific decisions they made. We don't see the parents much, for instance. That's a conscious choice made by the filmmakers. But then I think Homer works very smartly within all the other limitations imposed upon her. This short running time, for instance. I think this is the sign of a smart filmmaker, not trying to cram every last idea she's ever had into her first film, it's obviously still ambitious, but it shows discipline. Beezy and Maya's fits have now put Tony basically right out. She's an outsider again. She follows the girls to practice but doesn't go in. She's on the outside looking into the boxing gym. Which is where she was so at home before. And I think the final straw for Tony, the final catalyst for her fit, is when she sees her brother training someone else the way he trained her. It is time for her to let go of what was. And in retrospect, this transformation that she's undergone, it seems to have happened so fast. Because in life, one day you're not, and then you are, somehow. And now it's time for her fit. The camera focuses on her bare feet. Back inside the community center, she floats above and forward. We see the feet of the other girls back away. And then she lands. The filmmakers have played a song that asks why we choose to be slaves to gravity. And so I'm wondering, is this a suggestion of a mental and physical capacity she's now gained? She's come to understand something? She's come to celebrate maybe her own mastery? I feel like that's exactly what it is. Her fit compared to the others seems otherworldly. Obviously, everyone's experience is unique to them. When she finally falls and they catch her, I love that final moment when she looks into the camera and then there's just that hint of a smile across her face. My faith in her feels completely justified right then. She's in control. All these worlds are coming together. Everything is coalescing in her to make her a whole person. What she communicates in that glance, I feel pride in her self-sovereignty, just like a big brother. 
Wow, that was a great experience. I loved watching that again. I can't wait to come back to it. One thing, though, that we haven't mentioned, that we've been chatting about since then, and I don't think it occurred to us at the time. This film was made by a white director. The story focuses on people, young people of color. Is this something that we need to be concerned about? Will we be concerned about this even more 10 years from now? There's definitely a conversation to be had, because you're right. And more specifically, a liberally educated white woman making a movie about working class black kids. It celebrates strong black girls, but does it emphasize physicality so much that it veers into the dubious and long established territory of trading on black bodies for entertainment? It centers on athletics and performance without a doubt, but ultimately for me, Royalty Hightower and her face and her ability to listen saves it from that. It pulls it back from that. Her face has the quality of a great mask in that we can project onto it. And I don't mean that in the sense that she's a blank, but she's an avatar through which we can see the best of ourselves, no matter what our background. There aren't many honest and accurate stories about being a young girl, especially about being a strong, young, and black girl. So more power to her, I think. Let's celebrate her, continue to make art in an effort to understand one another, and keep doing what it takes to get the means of production into everyone's hands so every culture can tell their own stories. I was more concerned about questioning if she made something palatable to me as a white person that I didn't have really any right to feel related to in the way that I do. I think that's where my second point really comes into play. That whole thing about making art as a means to understand one another. That's how I approach that part of it. And I do want to say that the filmmakers, the screenwriters, all specifically said, and I even saw Alexis Neblet talk about this, that this was a complete collaboration. They were first-time filmmakers. The actors had the opportunity and used that opportunity to make any and all changes that they wanted, to make sure to tell the story that was relevant to them which was more about age than skin color or class. I watched a really interesting Q&A from several years ago because I wanted to see if that question did get brought up. And really, the only crank in the audience asked if he was supposed to understand the arc of the film or if this was kind of quote-unquote new cinema. Yes, I have more of an observation than a question. It really was. I can't relate to that point of view, but I can relate to the kids <laughs> in this film. Well, can you relate to giving me a recommendation this time? I sure can. Also, because you had to watch this without me first to make sure that I'd be able to handle it. And that film is Eighth Grade from 2018, written and directed by Bo Burnham, also his directorial debut, with Elsie Fisher and Josh Hamilton. Yeah, you talk about my big brother instincts kicking in on this. Man, it really did with this one. It's about 8th grader Kayla, who is finishing her final week of middle school. Kayla creates these motivational videos on YouTube about confidence and positive self-image, but they don't get views, and they don't really reflect how others perceive her at school, which is as a really quiet and shy person, almost invisible. This last week involves some key events in her own growth, standing up for herself, making friends who understand and appreciate her, and becoming the hero in her own story. It's very, very funny. The best part is, at no point do we laugh at Kayla. We're always on her side in the best possible way. Because she earns our admiration, and she doesn't let herself down. Also, just like in the fits, nothing truly terrible happens, thank God. How about you? Well, something truly terrible happens in mine. I have chosen Beasts of the Southern Wild from 2012, directed by Ben Zeitlin and starring Covanjane Wallace and Dwight Henry. And it's about a six-year-old girl in an isolated Louisiana bayou community that is coming to terms with her father's terminal illness, environmental disaster, and prehistoric beasts roaming the countryside. She has a lot going on. I choose it because it has a lot of parallels with the fits in that there are elements of magical realism at work here. It has a knockout performance by a captivating young actor, and it has that looming specter, just like the fits, of how am I going to feel about this a decade down the road? 
And I think it's a good thing to check in with ourselves and reevaluate how a piece of art fits into our cosmology. There are a lot of moments of tenderness and wonder here, but will that hold up as I move along? For now, it definitely does. So once again, that's two great recommendations, Eighth Grade and Beasts of the Southern Wild. And that brings us to the end of our fourth anniversary episode, episode 110. If what we do here is valuable to you and you would like to support that, we would certainly love for you to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. The $5 a month level gets you access to a big backlog of bonus episodes, and those come out on the Mondays alternating with regular episodes, so that you never have to go a week without new Magic Lantern in your life. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast on any of those platforms. Our podcast network, The 25th Frame, is home to a lot of great shows, so please stop by 25thframemedia.com to check out all of our cinema-loving friends and compatriots. We are on Twitter, at Lantern underscore casts, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. John Laubinger over at Film Baby Film, Andy Wolverton, The Fine Gentleman of Fuds on Film, Chris Casey, Matteo Boscarol, Jeff Duncanson, and Tim Lego. If you're sharing the show or talking about us, please make sure to tag us so we can say thanks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, and the 25th Frame. Just about anywhere you get your podcast, you can find us. If you'd like to leave us a rating or review via any of those services, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Fifth Frame, a listener-supported network celebrating film and culture worldwide.